You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture today is from John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samarian woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samarians. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Turn to John chapter 4 if you haven't yet. That's where we're going to be at this morning. In all my time in uh, ministry over the last 10 years or so, I've come to one conclusion that might be um, unpopular or disputed, but I think it's true, and it's this. Everybody needs counseling, (laughs) and here's why, because all of us have emotions. Emotions are from God. They're not a bad thing at all, but uh, emotions usually dominate our life. Emotions usually determine how we live, what we do. Here's the thing about emotions. Emotions do not tell us what is true. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. Emotions don't tell us what is true, but they do certainly tell us what we believe. 
And often, we're believing lies. And we're living according to lies. We believe lies about ourselves for so long that we operate out of those lives. And for it, we experience self-destruction and we hurt other people. And this is why I'm saying therapy is not always a bad idea. Counseling is not always a bad idea because we are all beings with emotions who are believing lies and are experiencing the consequences of it. And today in this passage, I love this passage, by the way, because Jesus is kind of giving a therapy session, a counseling session here with this woman who has been living in lies and believing lies for a very long time. And this is the therapy session he's having with her, and he's inviting us into it to uh, read this, lay our lives against it, analyze it, and see how we can benefit from it. And so we're going to ta- be taught today how to break this cycle of shame, how to break this cycle of believing lies. And we're going to be shown this in three ways as we move through the story. And really, we're going to show uh, what God does to break this and how we can partner with him in it. We're going to see that one, God pursues. Two, God confronts. Three, God heals. And when we recognize this pattern and partner with God in this pattern, we experience restoration. We experience healing from that shame, from those lies, from that self-destruction, from those patterns that are eating us alive. God pursues, he confronts, he heals. That's what we're going to see today. And these, this pattern that God does invites us into fullness of life in him. And that's what he wills for us and wants for us. So before we go ahead and analyze this together, Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to teach us and be with us right now. Father, we want to be in the center of your will. We want to have the fullness of life in your Son that you have willed for us, that you have invited us into, that you desire for us. So Father, I pray today that we would have the courage to see in our lives where we are holding on to lies where we're not addressing shame, sin, secret in our lives, letting those things dominate us. God, give us the courage to acknowledge these things, to hand them over to you, allow you to have your way with them and to have your way with us so that we might experience the confirmation, the transformation into the image of your son that you want for us. Because, Father, when we look at Jesus, he is the most fulfilled the most happy, the most selfless, the most intimately walking with you human being that there ever was. And we want to be more like Christ. We want to think how he thinks. We want to desire what he desires. We want to live like he lives, suffer like he suffered, die like he died majestically and experience his resurrection. And so, Father, be with us now. Help us, teach us, give us eyes to see your truth today. In your name we pray, amen. So, how to experience this restoration, this healing, this detachment from lies, first God pursues. Look, look at me, uh, with me in verses 3 through 4, where it says that Jesus left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, the interesting thing here is, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. There are many routes a, Jewish, a Jew would take uh, to avoid Samaria. There are many routes someone could take from Judea to Galilee that, that wouldn't require you to pass through Samaria. So what you have to do here, and you come to the phrase that says he had to pass through Samaria, you don't read that as if he was 
obligated to do so, as if he had no other option. You read that as he was determined to pass through Samaria, to go through this region. Now, you have to know the backstory to see why this is so confounding and interesting and jaw-dropping. See, historically, after King Solomon reigned, uh, the, the nation, the kingdom of Israel was split up into two kingdoms. In the north, there was Israel with its capital, Samaria. In the south, there was Judah with its capital, Jerusalem. So there was this, this schism in this kingdom. And in the north, when Assyria from the north invaded Israel, what happened is some of the nationals there, the Jews there in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, handed over their neighbors, uh, turned over their neighbors to the Assyrians, remained there, and married the Assyrians who, who uh, filled the vacuum. And, and this Jewish people became this mixed population of people, which were called the Sumerians. The Jews hated the Sumerians. They called them dogs. They thought they were half-bloods. They thought they were corrupted people. They saw them as traitors handing over their people to the enemy. So there's this serious racial strife, this serious prejudice, this historical long-standing hatred that's had between these two people. The Jews oppress the Sumerians. The Sumerians hate them in return. The Jews return it with hatred. Hatred all around. This is where Jesus decides to pass through enemy territory to people who his people hates and who hate him. But uh, the pursuit here isn't just radical. And now, as we keep reading the story, it takes a turn towards um, just being uncomfortable, just being uh, cringy. Look at verses 5 and 6. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, it says, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus, he locates this well. He sits by it at the sixth hour, which is noon in the middle of the day. And what happens next in the story is this woman from Samaria approaches him, and Jesus asks for a drink. And this is her response to him. In verse 9, how is it that you, she says this to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So obviously she is scandalized, right? And not just because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, but because she is a woman. In this culture, to speak to a woman publicly, uh, it was culturally inappropriate. Certainly if it regarded religion and doctrine, so which Jesus is definitely going to get into with her, and especially if you were a rabbi, like Jesus is considered a rabbi, this was completely taboo, a cultural no-no. So Jesus here, you have to see, he's breaking social code by speaking to this woman and asking for a drink. And moreover, in asking for a drink, he's breaking Jewish code because Jews did not share common dishes with Samaritans. And to make it even more uncomfortable, more scandalous, this woman... We find out later in the story what? She's absolutely disreputable. She has serious, um, she's, she's the one with the scarlet letter, if you will. She's a social stigma. We find out she's had five marriages. The man she's living with now, it's not her husband. We don't know what's happened. We don't know the backstory. Maybe all her husbands died. Maybe they left her. Maybe she left them. But either way, we know that this woman is absolutely shackled in shame 
completely dominated by shame because she's coming to the well at the sixth hour, which is noon. And we know historically and culturally that women went together to the well to get water never at noon, later in the day when it cooled off or earlier in the morning when it cooled off. But here she is going alone by herself to the well to draw water. She's an outcast. And not an outcast in the sense that uh, you know, she doesn't agree with everyone's verdict, in a sense that she's resigned herself to everybody's verdict. She knows that she's an outcast. She knows the shame that she carries. She knows that she is disreputable. She's the kind of person uh, who, uh, you know, if you'd run into the grocery store and you knew their backstory and you saw them in the aisle, you kind of like have an awkward moment, you turn the other way really quickly, check out as quickly as you can, and then get in your car, call someone and say, you'll never, you'll never guess who I just saw in the grocery store right now. That's her life. That's this woman. But Jesus, listen here. Jesus, he goes into Samaria. He speaks to this woman of all women's. He asks her for a drink. He engages her of all people. Now, I want you to recall something. Let's pause here. I want you to recall something, and this is something that we take for granted. But in this story, I, w- I want to maximize the power of this, of this reality. It says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You know what that means? That means we look no further than Jesus to know who God, who we don't see, to know who he truly is, what he's like, what he cares about, what his heart is. The heart of God is revealed in his Son, who he sent on his behalf. John even tells us that he is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. In him is the fullness of God. No one has ever seen God, the only God, except he who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. We've been taught this whole entire time through John that Jesus, we look no further than him to know who God truly is. So listen to me. God knows exactly who you are. He sees everything that you want no one else to see with all your pain and all your regrets and all your shame and all your secrets. He knows it all. And he is not uncomfortable. And it's not weird for him. And it's not awkward. And he just doesn't care about those things. He cares about you. God knows you fully and loves you fully. That's what Jesus is proving to us right now. And the point becomes even more dramatic. I want to just dramatize this point. Uh, Remember, God is sinless. God is holy. And God is perfect. And there are times in the Old Testament where God's holiness uh, is uh, in action. In action, what it looks like is he absolutely consumes people in sin. It's like fire goes out from God's presence and consumes people because of their sin. That happens in the Old Testament from time to time. But that is a decision of God, not an uncontrollable impulse of God. Those instances happen after a long time of patience and instruction from God to his people. We're actually told what God's impulse is, what his preference is. His preference John 3:17 Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it but to save it. 
God prefers saving. God prefers kindness. God's favorite thing to do is show love. That's what he wears on his sleeve. That's what he's on the edge of his seat to do. The, the most quoted verse in the entire Old Testament, by the Old Testament itself, is from Exodus 34, where God shows who he truly is to Moses. And God says, I am, listen to this, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So truly, God, his favorite thing to do is to love, to show kindness, to give mercy and grace. And we're not saying that he doesn't have wrath and fierce anger. He absolutely does. But that's not an uncontrollable impulse, and that's not his first instinct. Love is. And let me dramatize this even more. This well that Jesus is coming to, that this woman comes to, in this region that all this is taking place in is a very historically important place in, in the story of God's people. At this well, it's called Jacob's well, isn't it? You know what happened at this well? This is where Rebecca was found for Isaac. This is where Jacob met Rachel. This is where Moses met Sipporah. So all of these famous important marriages and pledges and promises were made at this well. And she might not realize what's happening as this, as this conversation's unfolding, but we're, we're certainly supposed to realize what's happening. And it's this, that Jesus is, is stepping into this pattern that this well seems to be um, creating. And he's saying something by talking to this woman, which is this. And I don't mean this literally, of course, we, we just mean this in a poetic way. He's saying to this woman, I'm going to be the husband you never had. I'm going to be the love that you've never had. All those marriages before that happened at this well, all those pledges and covenants and promises before at this well, I'm coming to make the greatest. I'm coming to fulfill them all. So Jesus, he comes to people with shame and baggage and regret, sin they've done, sin done against them. And he says, I'm here to pledge my heart to you. You are the kind of people I'm interested in. You are the kind of people I've come for. I want to be the husband, the love that you never had. This is God's heart. We look no further than Jesus to know who God truly is. God's heart is for damaged, wounded people. So everyone in here, don't let your feelings determine what is real because your feelings will lie to you. Like I said before, emotions, they're from God, but they don't tell us what is true, but they do tell us what we believe. And when we live according to shame and we live according to secrets, when we live according to regrets, we are living a lie because the true reality is what God says and what God determines and what God has dictated, which is this, I see you and love you. I know you and love you. I pursue you and I'm coming for you. So seeker, okay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're curious, maybe you've been invited by somebody, when you feel like your sin is too great for God to redeem, that's a lie that you are believing. Because what's being proven here? That God wants you. He wants you. He does. He's not going to give up just because there's some obstacles. He sees you completely and is ready to take you on. Now, believer here, okay, those of you who have crossed that threshold and trusted in Christ to be your righteousness, that is your identity. Jesus' perfection, Jesus' beauty and flawlessness, that is you now. And so truly, when shame fills you, 
when you look back at these memories that are self-loathing and condemning, that's not who you really are. You know that? That's not your true identity. Your true identity is what God has spoken in heaven over you, which is, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's who you really are. Now, (laughs) I know this is really strange, everything I'm saying. I know that this might take some of you by surprise, but I just want you to think about this honestly and objectively. Every, I don't know if you've thought about this, but every male character in the Old Testament is kind of a, a scummy person. Just think about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Liars. Cowards. Think about David. I know all of us who grew up in church, you know, David's the man after God's own heart. That's true. That's what is assigned to him, associated with him. But David was not a good person. Like, he was an angry fool. And he was a violent man. And he was an adulterer and a murderer. He was not a good friend to people. Yet, the man after God's own heart. Why is that? It's because David was really, 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 really good at repenting and collapsing into God's grace instead of collapsing into his shame. These are the kinds of people that God loves. These are the kinds of people who God pursues and pledges himself to and works with and changes and transforms and never gives up on. And so I know this might be like really uncomfortable for, me to, for you to hear me say, God's preference is love. God loves wounded, broken people. God goes after really lost people. Because we think that Christians just have it all together. No, we don't. We just don't. <laughs> Everyone in here has serious flaws and setbacks. Believe me, I'm your pastor, I know. <laughs> and we just fail to remember that God is far more gracious than we can imagine. So, believer now, okay? Listen, eyes up here, believer. Let me ask you a question in light of all this, and this is kind of taking a, a, a quick turn towards a different kind of application, but this is really important. Believer, if this is God's heart for the lost, is this your heart too for the lost? Not just the lost, but the really lost. Like this woman isn't just lost, she's really lost. And when we think about lost people, when we say that, we think about people who look like us, talk like us, who fit our cultural norms. Is your heart for the really lost God's heart for the really lost? Like Jesus here walks up to a woman who's completely an outcast, looks her in the eye and gives her dignity and has a conversation with her. Is this our heart? See, it's easy to love people who are clean and who fit the bill, but the dirty and disreputable, the taboo, how are we doing loving them? How are we doing pursuing them? Let me ask you this. If someone came in here who's weird, off the streets, if someone transgender come in here, if someone who is gay came in here, what would you do? Would you look them in the eye and give them dignity and have a conversation with them like Jesus would? In the Gospel of Luke, we are told very clearly what Jesus is all about and what he came to do. Three things. It says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came for the sick, not the well. The Son of Man came eating and drinking with sinners. That's his game plan, and that's his heart. Is it ours? 
It should be. God is amazing. He really is. He pursues us. He pursues us to the dirtiest, unclean, shadowy, secretive places he pursues. Now listen here. We're moving on to the second point. And I want to clarify something here. Uh, God does not only pursue, because I don't want to give you the impression that God is going to get behind our sin and just, yay, thumbs up, I love you. That's a nice idea, but it's not true, because that's not actually love. Love, when you truly love somebody, there's going to be confrontation, there's going to be challenge, there's there's going to be disagreement, because you don't want to enable that person into self-destruction. And so God, because he loves, yes, he pursues, but he doesn't leave us where we're at. He doesn't leave us in our secrets and our sin and our shame. He now confronts us, okay? So this woman, she asked Jesus why he'd be even talking to her in the first place, and now he makes her an offer. He tells her something here in verses 10 through 14. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Here's his offer. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give, that Jesus gives, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the offer that Jesus is making here is a fountain of living water that quenches soul thirst, that never dries up, but in fact wells up and resides within us at all times. And Jesus here, okay, he's not just speaking in flowery, nebulous language. What Jesus is saying here is highly doctrinal, theological, and biblical. It's this, what he's saying here's language is dense with promise and anticipation because in the whole Old Testament, uh, there's been anticipation that God would restore to his people living water, okay? Let me say it a different way. What Jesus is offering this woman is, is nothing less than a restoration to the Edenic life, to life within Eden. Remember in life in Eden, what was it like? We walked with God, walked with God in the cool of the day unhindered relationship with God. That's what he's offering to this woman. And we know that because in the Garden of Eden, the garden was on top of a hill, and it had a stream of river running down from it. And then in the temple, which was built later on Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, it was purposefully built to be like an echo of Eden, but also a a projection of our future hope that one day God will recreate Eden, bring us back to Eden. Well, guess what? In the temple... There's a stream of water running underneath it. And then the prophets, Zechariah and Ezekiel, they anticipate one day in the new temple that is to come, there's going to be living water flowing in it. And we read in our congregational reading this morning, what, that God himself is the living water that we have rejected, but he still has a heart for us and wants to be with us. So when you synthesize all this together, what Jesus is saying is the reality of the Garden of Eden, God's presence with man, which was lost in the fall but anticipated to be restored, is offered here and now. God's presence not just with us, but within us, serving as a source of refreshment and healing all the time wherever we go. So because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
it's possible to have a relationship with God that finds its closest description as walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. So she replies in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this is too poetic to not be obvious. On the surface, she's saying, I'd love to not have to come here to the well anymore, but more honestly, more deeply, what she's saying and voicing is I'd love for my soul thirst to be quenched and the shame I have to live with in coming to this well by myself to be removed. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the thing that is in the way of her experiencing this healing, restorative presence of God in her life is her sin and shame. That's what's blockading her receiving this offer and experiencing this restoration of life. So Jesus responds to her in 16 through 18. And this is really weird, but it's purposeful. He says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, "I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now here's my question. If Jesus knows this woman's situation, then why would he poke at it? Why would he bring up this, the most shameful part of this woman's life? Right here, right now. It's because the only way for this woman to have living water welling up inside of her to eternal life is for her to allow Jesus to drill deep down into this area that is off limits so that it can become a reservoir where living water can well up and heal. Have you ever dug into the ground for a long time? Just dug a hole? When you dig and dig and dig and dig, eventually you hit subterranean water, don't you? And when you hit subterranean water, it pools up, right? Or when you're digging in a place where there's lots of moisture, when it rains, it it becomes a pool. Jesus is drilling into the deep, hidden, secretive recesses of this woman's heart so she can have what she desires, to never be thirsty again to come, and to never come to the well for water ever again. No more soul thirst, no more shackling shame. And so listen here, if you want real, like real relationship with God, you have to entrust yourself to him and let him go where you want no one else to go. Your shame. That's what we're talking about here. They're dark parts of your heart, your secrets. Everyone in here, listen, everyone in here has, lo- has a level of shame to some degree, to some level, due to our sin or sin done against us. You have to let Jesus in there to experience healing and restoration. That dry, parched land of your heart, God wants to make it a fountain of living water that can serve as a source of healing and power for you. But it won't happen unless you let Jesus drill there but we don't want to. We don't want to let Jesus drill there. We don't want to address those areas. So we do what this woman does. Listen here. Look, look. We deflect and we misdirect. That's what she does. Look, verse 19 and 20. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's she doing here? You see it? Here's what she's thinking. Oh, instead of dealing with that shame and pain, let me ask a theological question. Let me show him my doctrine, how much I know. Let me me 
deflect attention away from the parts of me that are really, really unimpressive that I don't even want to acknowledge and let me direct his attention to the place, place where I'm impressive, where I'm strong and capable. Let me talk doctrine. Why do we do that? Why does she do this? Because if I don't have to deal with shame, and if I'm impressive, I can live in denial of this messed up, broken part of me. If I can emphasize this really good part of me, maybe God or others won't notice my weaknesses. Instead, maybe they'll just pay attention to where I'm good. See, misdirection and deflection permits us to justify not dealing with one deep, dark place in our hearts. You know, I got 10 10 things I'm good at over here, 10 things I'm doing well over here, so I can justify not having to deal with that one single deep, dark place over here. So my good outweighs my bad. So I don't need to deal with this undercurrent of shame in me. All of us do this. Like, I'm not going to ask, do you do this? We all do this. So let me ask a few questions right now. If that's true, okay, if it's not a big deal, if you're doing all this over here, you have this doctrine, you have how much you go to church, you have how much you're serving over here, you have all this impressive stuff over here, this one part over here that's less than impressive, that's painful, but you don't want to address it, no one needs to know about it, it's not a big deal, right? Well, then why are you angry all the time? Why are you working so hard to achieve? Why are you anxious and not sleeping? Why are you obsessed with perfectionism? Why are you proud and arrogant? Why are you extreme and critical? Why are you depressed and vegging on TV and social media and abusing substances? It's because, here's, there's an answer, and here's, here's what it is. If that shame isn't healed and treated, you'll operate out of it, even unconsciously and subconsciously. You are trying to put a Band-Aid on it by drowning it out or outweighing it with something else. That's not healing, it's only distracting. Just imagine, instead of trying to drown out or outweigh that place of shame and darkness, imagine if it was healed. Imagine if you didn't need to live your life anymore with this part of yourself that's so sensitive that anytime anything comes near it and bumps against it, you have to act out, okay? Imagine if your life was no longer like that. This is why you need your whole heart, not just some of it or most of it, to be a fountain of living water. You'll never be as happy as, you'll only ever, <laughs> excuse me, pardon me, you will, never, you will only ever be as happy as the extent of your heart surrender to Jesus, To put it biblically, let me just put this biblically. When you go to Genesis, it's said that God created the first human pair and he says he blessed them. And he said, go be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That right there can summarize your your reason why you were created. To know God, to love God, to love others. (laughs) To be blessed by God and to be a blessing to be in blessed relationship with God so profoundly that you overflow with that blessing to other people. He said, be blessed and go and subdue the world and have dominion over it. That is why we exist. You will never live in the blessedness of God and therefore be a blessing to anybody else if you're keeping God out of those places in your heart where you want nobody to go. 
your blessedness will only, will only ever have a very short ceiling. And look, I'll be honest with you. I know this is hard. I get why this is hard because to turn and face your pain, to turn and face your shame, it's scary and it's exhausting. Because it would require acknowledging that source of your shame, then acknowledging how it has dominated your behavior and it has shaped your identity. What we think about, what we think about, changes what we desire. What we desire will determine how we behave, and how we behave will become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. So quite literally, to deal with secret shame is to accept that you're going to have a complete undoing. That, that you likely will have to have a whole new identity and a whole new way of living and a whole new life because you've been thinking a one way for so long that has changed your desires, that has become how you behave, that has become your character, that has become your destiny. To acknowledge your shame is going to unravel all of that. But Jesus is going to build it back up. But I know that's scary. I, I know that's exhausting. To fight shame is to accept that everything might change. If you were to heal shame and treat it, it means you'd have to stop that behavior and lose that identity. It would be a massive overhaul of your life and your very self. You might lose your self. But Jesus says, if you lose yourself, then you'll find it, right? If you lose your life, then and only then will you actually find it. In other words, if you turn and face your shame with Jesus, then by the indwelling Holy Spirit, he will transform that part of you from a self-loathing, condemning memory in your head to a memorial to his love and grace, which will always then serve as a reminder for you to reflect on a power for you to draw from, a well to drink from. Get that? We have these memories that cause us pain, that cause us shame. When we let Jesus in there to do his transformative work, they become new memorials, new altars that we can always look back on, no longer for condemnation and shame, but as evidence and self persuading eyewitness that God is faithful, that he is powerful, that he loves me, and as a result, there's peace and newness in my life. That, friends, is living water. That's what he means here. We allow the Holy Spirit to fill every part of us. God dominates every part of us so that we can experience instead of dry, part, shame, condemnation, it becomes a wellspring that bubbles up to eternal life. So let me ask you a question now. Okay, look, look here. What are you misdirecting with? What are you distracting yourself with? The mount you read the Bible? That's a favorite of ours. The soundness and precision of your doctrine? Doctrine's important, very, very important. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. But you can use it as a way to distract yourself from your shame that you're not dealing with. What are you misdirecting with? Your efforts and your works and your service? Let me ask you another question. Why is it that great men fall? Why is it that over and over again, 
In the Christian church, there's scandal after scandal amongst leaders. Why is that? Here's an answer. It's because misdirection from sin and shame and justification to not deal with it because we're doing enough, it will never lead to change. So we'll operate out of that shame, always trying to drown it out and outweigh it, but only, it's only a matter of time before we self-destruct or hurt someone else. So God pursues, and now God confronts. He's asking, let me in there. Let me into the place where you want no one to go. Those memories, those regrets, those painful times, like, let me in there. You know, we have this, we grew up with this image of Jesus that he was like some white American, blow-dried, great celebrity smile hair and, and smile. And that Jesus is not relatable, not powerful, and not interested in me. Jesus is a blue-collar worker, a carpenter with sun-beaten skin. He, he is willing to get in the dirt, in the blood, in the mess, and deal with our stuff, truly. And so he comes and pursues, and he comes to confront, and now he wants to heal. But healing calls us to respond. Healing means that we have to partner with God in what he is doing. So let's start now by seeing Jesus answer her theological questions. He actually uses it as a way to show us how we're going to heal, how we're going to be transformed and have fountains of living water bubble up inside of us. He says in verses 19 through 26 this, or let's read, says, she says to him, Sir, I perceive your prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you said that you, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Listen here, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. So He answers her questions. He tells her that historically the Jews had it right. The place of worship is in Jerusalem where the temple was. But then Jesus says the hour where worship was at a fixed location, is over. True worship will now take place inside the heart of every worshiper. The place of worship is no longer the temple, but our bodies. What the temple used to achieve, now the spirits indwelling in us will achieve. The temple was the place of God's healing, restorative presence, but now our bodies will house God's healing, restorative presence. And notice she says to all this, okay, I know that Messiah will tell us all things when he comes. Likely another misdirection, likely another distraction, but a hint of sincerity too, like before. She's intrigued. She desires what Jesus is explaining. She holds out because she's waiting for Messiah to bring the final explanation of all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you and am he. So for her, for us, the wait is over. She and we can trust Jesus' explanation because he is the Messiah. He is God's sent one. He is God's man. He is the one that we have been waiting for. And in Jesus' explanation, 
his trustworthy explanation because he is the Christ, he actually gives us the pathway for healing. He gives us the practices that we must incorporate into our life to partner with God to cause living water to flow through our bodies. And he says twice in his explanation that we must worship God, what? In spirit and in truth. That's the pathway to healing. That's the practices that we need to incorporate into our life to experience restoration. So what does this mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? Okay, let's talk about first, spirit. Jesus says that God is spirit. He says that there in that, in that explanation. So he says, because God is spirit, we must worship in spirit. He also says what? That God is seeking, seeking such worshipers as these. So when we worship in spirit, that means we're responding to the God who is seeking us. God is spirit. He is seeking us. When we worship in spirit, we're responding to his probing. We're responding to his pursuit. So what it means when it says that God is spirit, it means that we have to relate and respond to God in the way that is appropriate to who he is and on his terms. God is not in a body. We don't interact with him like we do anyone else. Because God is spirit, we must worship in spirit, which means first and foremost that relationship with God takes place within us. In our spirit, the Bible elsewhere calls it our soul, our inner being, or our inner man. But worship of God fundamentally is at an internal, deeply personal, even emotive level. So it means this, okay? This is a shift in perspective. This means that relationship with God, (laughs) before we do anything for God, we are with him. Before we do anything for God, we open ourselves up to him. We don't busy ourselves. We must slow down enough to let God seeking probe us to the deepest levels. So this kind of worship that Jesus is prescribing, it takes place in thoughtful, prayerful, introspective times. And when we have the Holy Spirit indwelling our spirit, we allow ourselves to be open to God's seeking, to be open to his probing. The Holy Spirit then invades our heart to the deepest levels. Worship God in spirit. It's a personal internal thing first and foremost. The emphasis in your walk with God is not what you are doing for him, but whether or not you are with him whether or not you are still with him and allow him to seek you out. But also he says that we worship him in truth. Jesus says truth is required, and this is really important because I don't want to confuse you or lead you astray. This is important because we don't practice introspection mindlessly. It's not like we're doing yoga and emptying our mind. It's the complete opposite. We are filling our mind. As we allow God to seek us out and probe us and open up ourselves to him, we are filling our minds with his truth. And we wrestle. We wrestle with his truth in a way that allows it to settle into every crack and wound in our hearts. So here's how this looks. Psalm 42 says, David's writing it, and he, this is interesting. Listen, he, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? You see what he's he's saying there? It's introspection. He's 
partnering with God and letting God seek out what's going on in the deep recesses of his heart. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why angry? Why anxious? Why afraid? Why sad? And then he says this, soul, put your hope in the Lord and then you will sing again. Notice what he's doing there? He is preaching truth to his heart as he is allowing God to seek out his heart. He is stuffing his heart with truth, God's truth, as he worships in spirit. He's worshiping in spirit and in truth. Remember, emotions don't tell you what is true, but they do tell you what you are believing. And if your life is marked by fear, sadness, anxiety, shame, it means you're believing lies. And so you need to match the lie with a counter-truth, God's counter-truth. Here's the truth. I'm not defined by my past sins or what's been done to me. I'm not a failure. I'm not gross. I'm not unworthy. The truth is I'm forgiven and I'm seen as everything that Jesus is. So lately, guys, I've been practicing this in my own life. I've been practicing this, worshiping in spirit and truth. So when I find myself obsessing, over a thought that's self-loathing and condemning. There's plenty of them. When I find myself just in my heart unsettled with anxiety or fear, I literally sit down and I write down what I'm feeling, anger and fear, and I try, I try to pinpoint what the reason is, okay? What, am, what lie am I believing? Where am I putting false hope? Where am I trying to derive my sense of significance and love from? And then what I do after I do that is I write down what's God's counter-truth. What do I need to believe instead of the lie? What truth do I need to attach myself to? What I'm doing there is I'm worshiping God in spirit and truth. I'm letting the God who seeks seek deeply as I let him in. And then I let him chip away at that lie that has dammed up the fountain of, of the Holy Spirit. And when I apply God's truth to that lie, I'm giving the Spirit's permission to invade more territory of my spirit with God's peace and God's love. It's like more of myself is supplied with living water to quench my thirst and heal my shame. So for example, I'll be real with you guys. So for example, some of my most painful memories, places I don't want to go, I don't want to address, I don't want to think about, have to do with rejection. And specifically, it's when we first started this church, there's so many people who came through and left and came through and left. And the lie, I believe, for so long was that my sense of worth, that my sense of, of significance, that whether or not I was um, important was based upon how successful this church was and how many people liked me and applauded me and praised me, blah, 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 blah. And so rejection was the most painful thing I was experiencing. And I felt like I wasn't good enough, not talented enough, not smart enough, not gifted enough, and on and on and on it goes. I was fragile. I was insecure. I was cowardly. And I compensated by having really good doctrine and good sermons and being really critical of everyone else who might expose how deficient I was. For a long time, God had to iron out all these lies that had me bent out of shape. And he did it. You know how? By invading the deep recesses of my heart where his truth was absent, where his truth was not reigning, and I had to let him in. And then a change took place slowly over time. I'm not perfect. I by no means have I arrived. I'm a work in progress. But a change is taking place. 
I've stopped defining myself by my insecurities and failures and my thoughts and in my memories, and I have begun to let God's truth, his love for me, Jesus' Jesus' perfection given to me, I let that now define me. And over time, what's happened is God's voice, his truth has become more weighty, has has become louder than that voice of self-condemnation and self-loathing in my head. And now I'm less fragile, less insecure, less cowardly, more resilient, more content in Christ. It's not to my glory. It's not because I'm doing anything. It's because God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in my weakness. It's because when we let the Holy Spirit invade our hearts, he will. I'm just taking up God on his, on his word. He says this is what he wants for us. He wants to flow us with living water. I said, okay, so be it. This is what God wants for us. Pursue us, confront us, and heal us, but you have to be all in. You must be all in. Are you okay walking out of here today operating out of shame at an unconscious level, hurting yourself and hurting other people, or do you want to walk out of here receiving what God's heart is for you, which is to be spirit-filled, to have your body be supplemented with living water that will quench your thirst and heal you. You have two choices today, okay? So let me, let me end with three things here. Let me set your expectations, let me clarify something, and then let me encourage you, okay? First, let me set your expectations. This process of healing is not overnight, If you want to have shame no longer control your life, it's not going to take one day. It's not going to take one week. It's going to be practices over a lifetime. And you'll be, if you're looking for instant results, which is what our culture is, we love instant results. And if we don't get instant results, we move on. You have to fight against that cultural current. You, You won't be happy with where you're at in five months. You'll be shocked at what happens in five years, though. So let me set your expectations. If you want restoration, transformation to happen, you have to commit to a new way of living, a new way of of walking with the Lord. It's not going to be check the box, let's move on and get with life. It's going to be this is life now, being still with him, letting him in, practicing introspection with his truth without distraction. It's a new way of living. So those are your expectations now, okay? It's not going to be instant results. That's, that won't work. Um, I mean, think about the parable of the sower. The first three soils that the word, the seed of the word drops into, they don't work because we want instant results. But you know the seed that works, that produces a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest? What soil is that? It's the soil where the seed penetrates deeply, takes root slowly, gets nourished and healthy, then it produces a great harvest, that has to be your standard. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. So in the meantime, don't let your emotions dictate how things go. Don't believe the emotions. Emotions won't always tell you what is true. Secondly, let me clarify something. If you're here and you're not a believer, you know, you ha- you're not um, someone who's trusted in Christ to be their Savior. If you have not acknowledged before Him that the way that you are living trusting in yourself and hoping in other people sets you at odds with God, that you are underneath his wrath and his judgment because you have refused him and because you have taken part in things that are uh, hurting yourself and others, 
If you have not made that decision to trust in Christ as your Savior for your forgiveness, then this is an offer for you, but it's not a possibility for you. Because you are cut off from the Holy Spirit. You're cut off from reconciliation with God. You are alienated from Him right now. And what you need to do, your first step to get in on this healing is to repent of your sin and your self-trust and turn to Jesus and fall into his grace and his forgiveness that he's offering to you. He has died to make atonement for your sin. He has been resurrected to show you that it's not a lie. It's really, really true, and you can bank your life on it. So I just want to clarify, if you're here, this all sounds good, but you have to be a Christian. (laughs) Otherwise, it's only ever an offer and not a possibility. Thirdly, and lastly, let me encourage you. Opening yourself to God is how, like, okay, letting God in where you want no one to go, that's how you know if you really love Him and trust Him. Because you're offering something incredibly personal and precious and delicate. And so, offering God yourself fully and totally, letting Him in, holding nothing back. It's an act of faith. You're saying to Jesus, you have shown me up to this point enough of who you are, a sufficient amount of evidence for who you are, for me to release control of my life, for me to acknowledge this place I don't want to acknowledge, and let you take over from there. Let you take me wherever you're going to take me. Even if it means my whole life changes, even if it means people find out who I really am, even if it means I have to acknowledge how weak and how, how helpless I am, so be it. Like I don't want to do that, but if I take a step of faith, I'm saying, you show me enough up to this point for me to go ahead and trust you for the rest of the process. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, I don't know where this is going to take me, but Jesus, if you're leading the way, that's good enough for me. And so let me encourage you. This is how you really know if you love and trust Jesus, if you're willing to let him have it all, if you're willing to not hold anything back. And so Jesus, what he shows us is that God pursues and God confronts and God wants to heal. And so you have a choice today. You can walk out of here operating in shame or operating in victory. Let's pray. Our Father, We are incredibly indebted to you. You've saved us. You love us. You're not done with us. For those whom you foreknew, for those whom you predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you work out all things for the good of those who love, who who you love, who are called to your purpose. We trust you, God, that you are not done with us, that you are going to transform us over the course of our life until we meet you in glory. So Lord, be with us, strengthen us, help us by your spirit to adopt the practices, the worship of spirit and truth in such a way that begins to restore us and heal us. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.